well, I've been aware of Jeremiah, of course, by reputation. Uh, I've been cooking uh, food that was either a direct ripoff of his or heavily influenced by him for years without knowing it. Uh, but it was his book, uh, California Dish, uh, his memoir. In the book, there's a, a clear case made for his true importance to what we call the American food right. revolution. And the fact that he appeared to have been wittingly written out of history uh, made me, pressed my justice button, made me angry. Welcome to Friends of Anthony Bourdain, a podcast where we speak to the friends and colleagues of the late and great Anthony Bourdain. I'm one of your hosts, Fabrizio Volpondo, um, a food blogger and recipe developer and ex a uh, clumsy waiter who's spent many years in the back of the house, front of the house, and uh, all areas of restaurants. And here's my co-host. I am Emily Fedner. I am a cook. I'm a host, a content creator. I run a pasta pop-up in New York, and I am a longtime Bordenophile. So we just had the honor of speaking to Chef Jeremiah Tower, who is so iconic in so many ways. If you've ever picked up a menu and seen the words farm to table or new American cuisine or California cuisine, or even seen the list of a name of a farm anywhere in this country, we really have him to thank for that. Mm -hmm. Bourdain executive produced a documentary on the life of Jeremiah Tower, which uh, if you are listening and you have not watched, highly recommended. Yes. The last the Last Magnificent was a documentary produced in 2016 by Anthony Bourdain, basically spurred by Bourdain's outrage at Jeremiah Tower having been in quite a few ways written out of culinary history. So just to back it up a minute, Jeremiah Tower has had this fascinating life. He grew up traveling the world you know, with wealthy parents on ocean liners and experiencing first-class meals in Australia and England and et cetera, et cetera. But we know him best as the person who shaped the American culinary landscape through his time at Chez Panisse working alongside Alice Waters. Almost every restaurant you walk into uh, is, is in many ways a reflection, to one extent or another, of, of work that was pioneered by Jeremiah. Menus, the menus he wrote, were in incredibly influential, attributing, um, attributing ingredients proudly to American sources by name, American wines, American products. This, this was, again, new. So to have that kind of tectonic effect on, on a culture uh, I mean, how many Jimi Hendrixes or Chuck Berries can you have? <laughs> the documentary is based around the fact that Jeremiah Tower did not necessarily receive proper credit for his shaping of American culinary culture. And that is how him and Anthony Bourdain kind of forged a relationship. Minus the fact that mm. Jeremiah said he went to Lehal <laughs> and he had some he had some words about Bourdain about yeah. his experience at Bourdain's it's restaurant. Truly uh, just a wonderful person to speak to. And as uh, Bourdain had once said, and I think this really sums it up and sums up the necessity of our conversation with Jeremiah today, uh, in my view, we should know who changed the world. We should know their names. So mm. welcome to Friends of Anthony Bourdain, Jeremiah Tower. Welcome to the to the video recording, Jeremiah. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having us or for being here with us, Jeremiah. We're really excited to chat with you today. I guess we'd love to start by just asking you uh, to recall the first time you met Anthony Bourdain and, and where that was and what that was like. Well, I felt I'd met him uh, when I read Kitchen Confidential. I mean, no one had ever written something like that about the restaurant industry. So I felt, wow, this is somebody who I could really want to meet. So I went up to Leal, the restaurant that was on Lower Broadway, where he was the chef, and had lunch and then introduced myself. Actually, I think he came out and said hello. And he said, well, what was it like? I said, pretty bad. In fact, it's a terrible <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> you know, he wasn't I've a very good chef. But he adored that I had said that to him. <laughs> that is amazing. I feel like he said that in the past. And like he was like, everyone talks about me as if I'm some incredible chef. And I don't consider myself to be. I feel like it must have been a moment where he's like, a true person understands. Like, he's like, you get it. You're not just like, you know. Blowing smoke. Well, I always like to ask this question. Like, like, what was he like like upon the first meeting? You know, because I guess feel like there's a lot of vulnerability and like subtlety to him and uh, shine. Like, was he shy? Was he like that rock star that everyone grew to know? No, something in between. 
that those two mm. things because he, I mean, he was in the kitchen. He came out from the kitchen. He was in his whites. It was all sweaty from cooking. I just told him I didn't like his food. So, it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had visions of the, of a great steak au poivre with French fries, you know, and it was mediocre. And I said, I told him that. And I was stunned that I said it. I think I'd had a few glasses of wine. I'm sure I had. Was at least the wine good? Oh, the wine was fine. I think it was just a, a Beaujolais. It was delicious. Beaujolais, my favorite. Did he, did Anthony Bourdain already know who you were when you had reached out after Kitchen Confidential? Yes. Yes. I mean, when I, he, he came up to say hello, because he knew I was, he knew obviously my name from Chez Panisse and Stars and everything. Because this was after I moved to New York, probably in 2000. Oh, well, Kitchen Confidential came out when? 2001? Something like that. Anyway, it was right after it came out. And I was bowled over by it. I worked in restaurants for many years and didn't know anything about cooking. And I picked up that book from a recommendation from a line cook that I befriended. And to me, it was just a crazy moment in my life where I was like, wow, this is nothing like I've ever read even any sort no. of literature at all. And it was just such a beautiful piece of writing. Didn't scare the shit out of you about working in restaurants? Oh my God, it scared the absolute shit about, about me, about <laughs> life in general. Was, yes, indeed. It was more than just restaurants. exciting way possible. I don't, know, I don't know what this says about me, but that is the reason I became a line cook because I was working as a publicist for chefs and restaurants. And I remember reading that book early on in my career. And then I was kind of having a moment where I was like, what am I doing with my life? And right. I reread Kitchen Confidential and I decided, you know what? I kind of want to be like Beth, the grill bitch. I'm going to be a badass. I'm going to go. <laughs> the grill's a good place to be a bitch from. Yeah. Well, oh. unfortunately, I um, my successes on the grill were very short-lived. I was on Garda Manger, and then when I was on the grill for one short period of time, oh. I was flipping a chicken milanese, and I accidentally flipped it towards myself and just burnt my entire neck. So oh, dear. Short-lived yeah. moment. Speaking of line cooking and story tales in the kitchen, obviously you've had a very colorful and unique upbringing. What drew you to food originally? Well, because my parents traveled all over the world and we went with them. And uh, in those days, you know, the American corporations paid for first class. That was the top first class trains and planes and hotels. And, you know, that my entertainment, since my parents were out most of the evenings, was to sit in the dining room read the menus and gorge myself. So, you know, it was fun. <laughs> Food as entertainment. Absolutely. absolutely. Never met a buffet I like. And I think it was, you know, a la carte menus, for, which started with smoked salmon or caviar, and I was in heaven. <clears throat> what are your opinions on uh, modern first, first class cuisine on flights or trains? Or Oh, God, it's all gone. I mean, does it exist? I don't think so. I mean, no, they used it's, to be probably with cutting uh, filet mignon, you know, down the aisle in first class. Now it's nothing. Yeah, it's like frozen prepackaged. I have yet, I have yet to experience that. What was your favorite meal that you recall on either? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with boat. What was your favorite boat meal that you had, or you know, first? I, I, I have a fascination with retro and and vintage dishes. Is there one that sticks out to you that you had? Well, I mean, the Queen Elizabeth in the fifth, early 50s when we moved to England from Australia, I mean, that first class was unbelievable. My mother had her clothes made in Paris just for that voyage, and there was a, she, she had a different outfit for every night. I mean, that's how chic it was, because there was this long staircase coming down into the dining room, and people would make an entrance down the stairs. Everyone would turn to watch, see what jewels or gowns or something. I had my eye on the roast beef cart. <laughs> I mean, always the most exciting part of any event, obviously. Oh, right. I mean, the roast, the roast beef cart came up with a huge trolley with a great big dome on it, you know, and they'd push it back, and then you could say, and then they would, the waiter would train me to choose which pieces I wanted, a little bit of the outside, a little bit of the fat, a little bit of the rare interior. Yeah, it was quite an education. What do you think? Um... If you can recall something that stood out to you that anyone in whatever level of the wait staff ever said to you, is there maybe like a, a quip or even just a good word of advice that you might remember? I always tell them the story about Harry Cipriani because I was with my crew in New York. We were doing uh, Meals on Wheels. And I'd always take them out to dinner afterwards, you know, at 10, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, that, and we'd go back to the hotel and change and then go to a restaurant or three or four to see whatever the newest things going on in New York. 
well, it was late that night. We went to the chip brownie, but you just changed its location. And I said to my cooks, get behind me. Don't let anyone see you because we still smelled of charcoal and sweat and <laughs> fish. <laughs> so I said, get be I had always carried my at least one jacket with me. So I stood up and I said, get behind me, you know, sink it down so he can't see you. Otherwise, we'll never get in. And the maitre d' came over and said, I'm sorry, we're completely full. And I saw Harry Cipriani over his shoulder, and I sort of went, Harry? He came over and said, right this way, and took us to the best table in the house in the center of the room. I mean, he pretended we didn't smell and needed showers badly. And he, instead of saying anything to his staff, his maitre d', he served me himself, whatever I ordered. And that was the lesson. I thought that was the smartest, kindest, coolest lesson anyone could teach wait stuff it's it, it's it's such a lesson that and a way of being and treating yes. others that i feel like anthony bourdain really perpetuated in terms of treating people with dignity respect and treating people equally you know food being the great equalizer and right. a democratizing right. medium and the lack of snobbery and you know just making people feel like they belong is so special and goes a long way and as is demonstrated people remember that for a long time how you made them feel you might not remember what you ate that day but you do remember how you felt. Yes, absolutely. I mean, everyone likes to eat, but the thing about, and Tony was never mean. There are lots of mean people in the culinary world, but he never was. He could expose, the, I mean, rip out the underbelly, whatever it was, you know, but never mean. Always nice. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories about him is we were walking, we had just released The Last Magnificent, and we were walking to CBS for an early morning television, and across the street were, you know, 15 professional protesters. Uh, walking up and down with placards and screaming and yelling. And then they saw Tony and they went, Tony, Tony, Tony. He went over and across the street and said, hey, guys, could you be quiet for a minute? I got a 20-minute interview with Jeremiah. I mean, these were professional hoodlums from New Jersey. <laughs> and they just became like mice. And then we came back. I mean, who else could calm down picketers, professional paid picketers in New York except Tony Burden? I can't imagine anyone else. And he had that touch. I mean, it was, it was a real, I mean, there was lots of posturing and posing that goes on in the culinary world on TV these days, but Tony was real. It really is uh, so special that, you know, a book like Kitchen Confidential and just him, he himself as a persona could speak to the line cook line cooks right. america and could speak to right. the eric repairs of america and that was one of the things that made him so special what were some of your best memories of filming the last magnificent with anthony bourdain well first of all it's i mean it was tony's idea and the very great lydia tonalia from zero point zero who did all his other shows and most of them he suggested they do it and, he, and she said oh no he's a snobbish prick or something we don't want him and then <laughs> tony said no 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 Give it a whirl. So she said, you know, I'm going to be in San Francisco. Could we have a 30-minute talk? Which turned actually into seven hours and, and right. at least two bottles of champagne when she interviewed me. Then she said, okay, let's do it. We're going to do it. I mean, it's a very embarrassing title, but very commercially very successful title. I, said I think it's her, an amazing, iconic title. Yeah. And I said, I hope I'm not as magnificent for God's sake. But you know, I said, I insist we do two things. One, we take the high road with Alice Waters. And two, I have nothing to do with the production. She looked, looked at me and smiled and said, well, guess what? Those were the two things we were going to demand of you. So we had another bottle of champagne and talked about how we were going to do it. So you were in Mexico at that point, correct? Yes, but I had come back to San Francisco for, to do something. I forget what. And I told and, her. And did you feel, how did you feel? Like, did you feel comfortable with like, the idea of doing this whole documentary based on your life? or? How, uh, Absolutely how did you feel not. I mean, that? embarrassing. Very shy making, as the English would say. I mean, I'd never done anything. I'd been on TV lots of times, you know, morning TV, uh, where you've got three minutes to present your whole new restaurant and book and food and everything. Fortunately, I had no idea. If I'd known how odd it was to do it to, and then to see yourself. I mean, the first time I saw the movie was at the premiere in New York. I'd never seen any of the footage. So we went into the theater and I said to Lydia, we've got to sit on the edge towards the back because if they hate this film, you know, we're going to have to run for it. The beginning of the film is sort of that weird opening line, which came from my notebooks when I was 19, which I gave her for better or for worse. 
And so there was dead silence. And I turned to Lydia, who's next to me, and we were on the aisle. I said, Lydia, we got to get out of here. They hate this fucking movie. And the woman behind me heard it and started to giggle. And then the whole place burst into laughter and applause. So I thought, okay, we can stay and watch this. Oh, that's, that's a beautiful what a relief. It's, it's yes. probably so nerve wracking. At the end of the day, though, why did you say yes to doing the documentary? What well, was had, your, what, did you hope to get something across? What was? Well, we'd had three bottles of champagne by the time I said yes. So, I mean, there, there is that. Absolutely. And I really liked Lydia because I said, you know, if, if we're going to be pussyfooting around anything, I said, I've been in this business too long. I'm too old. We're not going to pretend. We're just going to lay it all out there. And let's talk about the restaurant business. I mean, it's Tony. And so let's do another kitchen confidential kind of thing. Show my career, show all the, the ups and downs and the good and the bad, because we need to teach the, the next generation that it's not just, you know, the food network. Mm-hmm. Wonderful moment with Tony when we were walking through some lobby uh, somewhere while promoting the movie. And this young woman came up and she was in white. So she was a culinary academy or something and said, how do I become a TV star? star?" He turned to her and said, don't. (laughs) So she burst into tears. He walked off and I I said, you know what I'm going to tell you? What he really meant was, first you have to become a really good cook and chef, then go into TV. I love that concept. And, you know, Fabrizio and I have a presence on social media. That's one of the mediums where we talk about food and cooking amongst other things. But as you are probably aware, the recent phenomenon of the TikTok tech, TikTok chef and the social media chef, it's ever present. And people always ask, you know, how do I become an influencer? How do I become famous on social media? And my response is always, that should never be the goal. Why would that be the goal? The goal is to present and give and share your perspective on something and and bring something meaningful to the world. And if that brings you an audience that's amazing but that should never be the goal it's the same as saying i want to be rich okay cool well, what are you going to do to get rich because yeah, right, that's right, exactly. that's a symptom and and not really you know right. goal. tony would have mm-hmm. said can you cook <laughs> to anyone who asked him that can you cook uh, yeah. and they'd be like no but i want everyone to think i can <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always wondered what tony's perspective on this recent phenomenon of social media culinary stardom and self-proclaimed cooks and home cooks and whatnot. So I'm curious, what is your perspective sort of on, you know, I feel like there's both good and bad, very humble people that just like to share recipes on social media. They get a platform and an audience, but then you also get, you know, a bit of the bad where it's these young men usually saying I'm a chef and they're just slopping around in the kitchen. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, someone of your success and, and ability and uh, everything. What is your perspective on that? Well, it's also, I call Instagram cooking. You know, the restaurants around the world now, it's all the way it looks. Oddly enough, I mean, the great hero up until recently of the culinary world, the Western cooking, was Auguste Escoffier, who in, you know, 1900 said, we're going to get rid of all the old way of doing things. And then he, of course, introduced the new way. And he said, it's not about appearance. You know, it's about the ingredients and, and whether you can cook or not. Of course, now it's become, incredibly, ironically enough, it's all about appearance now. Mm. As Tony said, well, can you cook an omelet? And people would look at him and say, huh? You mean that beige (laughs) thing? Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking about it because I think that at various, like I, we both, but speaking for myself, I've been such a fan of Anthony Bourdain for so long, since Kitchen Confidential came out. So at various junctures in my career, I'd be like, what would? Anthony Bourdain think of this and I frequently think about the the Instagram chef phenomenon and it is funny because no one can taste your food so all you really have is appearances and in this in the same vein as like the concept of the 90s supermodel versus Instagram models like it you know right. maybe the appearance is there but we don't know what substance is there right right or even like I mean, a lot of restaurants like even in the restaurant space you see a lot of restaurants with a uh, very flashy almost like a photo booth uh, yes. like restaurants almost feel like have become a, the largest photo booth and then you get the meal and it's you, you just leave so disappointed but you get a nice picture you get a nice picture and, and i always say have you tasted this and i yeah. i mean they can tell i didn't like it so i just you know push it a bit more and say have you did you actually taste this or just arrange it 
I love that that is saying so much without saying so much. Did you taste this? <laughs> Speaking of which, I don't know if you're even going to want to answer this. What is a recent disappointing experience you've had and why was it disappointing at a restaurant? Well, it, again, it's because, for instance, in Merida, they stopped looking back to the traditional ingredients, which is fine. But still, you know, the further you get away from your mother's or grandmother's cooking or the regional cooking, especially if you're in Italy or France, the further you get away from that, the more thin the ice you're standing on, the more dangerous. Because if you lose what, for instance, for me, the best, some of the best food in the world now is in northern Spain and Barcelona, northern Spain, where they, the fish was caught that morning, it's put on your plate, so the challenge to the chef is not just to arrange a beautiful plate. It's like, can you find the finest fish that day? Do you know how to take care of it until it's ready to be cooked? And that's an enormous thing, looking after the ingredients. Is it you? Are you trying to impress us with you or the fish? Mm. If you impress us with the, because they can actually cook, then we're incredibly impressed with you. But if he's just there saying, me, 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 look at me. I've got, you know, five different kinds of caviar on top of this poor bloody fish. Then, you know, <laughs> no, you can't such a you're a showtime. You're not a cook. You're, you know, yeah. you're that's such a recurring theme with like every conversation we're having is the concept of ego and how it can really just actually just get in the way and do the opposite of, of what you're hoping for, which is to prove yourself probably as, as a good cook. But I, I also love what you said about making the ingredient shine because you know, that is what you're known for is is for the basically the introduction of new American cuisine and and American ingredients as the star. Anthony Bourdain tragically passed away on June 8th, 2018. His death brought attention to the issue of mental health and highlighted the fact that mental health struggles can affect anyone, regardless of their public image or achievements. Following Bourdain's passing, there's been an increased awareness and discussion surrounding mental health in the culinary and entertainment industries. Many celebrities and professionals have opened up about their own struggles, aiming to reduce the stigma associated with mental health issues. It's so important to continue conversations about mental health awareness and provide support for those facing challenges. That's why this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And this is so important because finding a therapist can be super hard, especially when you're limited to the options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. Actually, BetterHelp was my first foray into therapy because I really wasn't sure how to get started and I had uh, experienced a really big life event. It was the first platform I turned to to demystify therapy, make it easy, and also it was very affordable. So very exciting to be able to partner with BetterHelp and spread the therapy gospel. It's something that I know you and I, Fab, really believe in and talk about often. Especially with resources like BetterHelp that makes it more accessible. I mean, we do speak so often about mental health struggles in the restaurant industry, making therapy affordable and accessible to line cooks and restaurant workers and people mm -hmm. who might not have traditional health insurance is something that I feel so strongly about. So highly recommend society will thank you. You will thank you. Uh, you know, your family and friends will thank you. Young men, please seek therapy. It's worked wonders for me. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. Why did you decide to switch the menu at Chez Panisse from a French, from, from French to highlighting American ingredients? What gave you that idea? To increase the business and make Chez Panisse more famous, I started doing regional dinners because we could charge, you know, almost twice. So instead of the dinner being six fifty for three courses, you know, we could charge $9 or something. So maybe $10 on Saturday night. I had run out of regions, you know, I'd done them all. And then there was the last left was Corsica. Well, I'd never, never been to Corsica. I'd never tasted Corsican food, had no clue. The little research I could do. Anyway, I cooked that dinner was the only really bad food we ever produced at Chez Panisse. And so I thought, you know, why am I, I was so embarrassed by this 
terrible stockfish and a sort of badly salted cod dish that I prepared, that I thought, why am I beating my head against the wall here? When I mean, we were sending one of the dishwashers down once a week to Monterey to pick up prawns, spend the night and drive them back. Uh, so I thought, we've got prawns. Why am I turning those into something French? We've got California ingredients here. So I thought, what are the best ingredients we've used in the last few months? All from California and the farmer's markets and everything. So I wrote them down and made a menu, put the menu in English for the first time and served California wines. And I called it, this was 1973, and I called it the California Regional Dinner. Well, everybody went mad. You know, and James Beard called me from New York and said, that's brilliant. What? Uh, and I told him the story about Corsica, and he rolled with laughter. <laughs> you know? Jeremiah, what are you cooking that crap for? You know, I said, what? <laughs> so that's how it all. That's how it started, and it was such a success that we didn't look back. And then all the, we just cook what was available every day. You know, the menu changed every day. It's just mind blowing that that started with you. I don't think that. I hope that everyone listening kind of understands the gravitas of that. Like the California cuisine, the new American cuisine, the farm to table. This came from, you know, it's the beginning of a movement. This came from this farm. Like yeah. the things that you and I grew up with essentially are because of Jeremiah, largely in part. And it's, it's, it was such a shift in, in American cooking culture, just being proud of American cooking culture rather than trying to right. outsource to French or Italian cooking cultures that were revered at the time. There were, you know, I knew the history of the great American restaurants, Delmonico's mm -hmm. in New York. It helped that we couldn't afford all the exotic ingredients like canned foie gras you know, or frozen Dover sole, which I didn't want anyway, mm -hmm. but we couldn't afford it. So we were forced <laughs> to look around us and people started bringing us things to the back door, you know. Kids working on fishing boats would bring us fish. Uh, so then I would write the menu for the next day right then, depending what came to the back door. Not only creates a delicious dinner, but also a nice little sense of community there, which is Right, right. Amazing. All those crazed stone hippies from the Berkeley Hills bringing me mushrooms. It's fun. <laughs> I was also reading old American cookbooks, and there was one from um, Delmonico's, and there was a dish called creme de maize a la mendocino, mm -hmm. and it was corn, green corn soup with crayfish butter plopped inside. And I thought, wow, crayfish and corn. I thought, so that, then I thought, okay, no more Corsica. I mean, <laughs> Mendocino was right up the road. So I thought if in 1900 they could be serving that in New York, it was time to look around us. And then the world changed, literally, or at least America. Uh, something I find fascinating is that you were so well known for not just delicious food and, you know, caring for the ingredients, but also your love of the dining experience. So yes. what to you makes the most special dining experience? One of the inspirations for stars was, I mean, I loved French brasserie. There's great big dining rooms that are open all the time and the waiter never says no. You know, it's very important <laughs> hospitality. No one ever says no. I mean, you can walk or what you say yes, and you walk away and say, now what the fuck am I going to do? But you always say, you did say yes. And then you We've can done get, that as <laughs> have a little meeting in the kitchen or the dining room and figure it out. So I walked into Boeuf Salatois in Paris in the mid-70s or something, and in the front table, there were two models, absolutely stunning models dressed in whatever couture. They had long red fingernails, and in front of them was this three-foot-tall seafood tower with lobsters and crab and oysters and everything. And they were using their long finger, little finger nails to take the crab out and then lick it off. Their, oh, and I thought, God, I want a restaurant just like this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that to me almost sounds like a beautiful scene, like food scene in a movie. And I feel yeah. like you must have maybe drawn inspiration from cinema. And do you have a favorite food scene in any movie? Because I'm a big fan of any film that has cooking, eating, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so here's what yours might be. The one that you can laugh your way through is La Grande Bouffe. Have you seen that? No. About I've heard of it. These uh, four guys or five guys decide to commit suicide by eating. So they take a house out in the suburbs <laughs> in Paris and start cooking. Everyone look at La Grande Bouffe because there's a scene in there when, when someone, someone is killed by eating foie gras while the, <laughs> the woman that they've hired to entertain them is forcing him foie gras. It's amazing. Anyway, 
For me, as a child, I loved those movies from the 30s. You know, mm -hmm. they're all in a, in a fancy restaurant or nightclub. They're all dressed in evening clothes. And someone always brings a telephone to the table. You know, and I thought, I'm gonna, I spent six months opening stars trying to figure out how to do that. It sounds stupid because everyone's got their own phone. But, you know, What's how to touch the phone. Well, I finally gave up. And thank God now everyone has smartphones. <laughs> but I love that everyone in evening clothes and champagne flowing and everyone being polite and glamorous. Yeah, and, and I feel like, I don't know, because I also love uh, TV, cinema, cinema and everything. And just the, the glassware, it was just dainty. And, and all the silverware was just right. had all this detail. And I don't know, an experience that I feel like it gets lost in modern day. My aunt in Washington, who was a great cook, very taught me a lot about cooking. Um, in the summer, she had some crystal bowls that were very thin, and she would serve um, beet soup, borscht, cold, bright pink from the cream inside, and there was a big chunk of ice in the bowl, and the proper soup spoons, not these stupid little things that everyone has now, but you know, proper soup spoon, big, and you would spoon the borscht over the ice, and you would hear clink 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 ding ding i mean magical was your aunt russian she married a russian she married a russian space scientist oh. and she would cook lunch for the two of us dressed uh in her imperial emeralds i mean she was amazing sounds like a fabulous woman i got oh, a lot of was. she was well. unbelievable on my 21st birthday her present to me was to invite me in and let me watch her putting on her makeup, which took an hour and a half. <laughs> that was her present. That was her present. And then we went in and cooked. I never did quite get on the stand between makeup, putting on makeup and cooking, but she was brilliant at both of them. Just, you know, they're both kind of an art and subject to, subject to interpretation. Right. And, um, right. you know, subject to cultural shifts as well. I see some relationship there. You were clearly a person who has a maybe not crystal clear, but, but you have this vision, you have these things that you love and you want to, you know, have them come to fruition. How was that in the collaborative environment of the back of the house? When you have these people either talented or not, whatever it is, and you have to help, have someone help you create this vision. What was that like for you? Everyone thinks that, you know, the famous chef is the one that's doing it all. I mean, it may take all the credit, but they're certainly not doing all the work. If you don't have great teamwork, a great team, you'll never have a great restaurant. I mean, how many restaurants have you been in the last two years? But there's no, you can feel there's no teamwork there at all. There's not even a manager. Everyone's, it's the staff running the restaurant. For instance, my staff knew what was in my head at the same time I did. So it made it easier, tougher on everyone and easier. We changed the menu every day at lunch. Every dinner was a different menu. So, I mean, how can you do that without everyone all in the same mind, all the same food culture, all the same aesthetic. Without the teamwork, it's impossible and it falls apart. Awesome. It's like a big organism and, ever, and you know, right. everyone has to kind of be connected with each other. Otherwise, there's no flow. And that seamless right. flow is what makes an amazing experience. Oh, I've worked at a lot of... Uh, oh, as have I. Every version of a restaurant. No direction. Yeah. But the, and and the point is, it has to look easy as if it's no effort. I think it's like rude to show people that you're, I mean, okay, sweating in the kitchen is one thing, but to, to tell everybody how difficult it is and how hard you're working, that's just rude. Mm -hmm. It should it's look effortless. effortless. When the servers are like really, like I love casual and, and friendly service, but when the server starts telling the tables about, you know, what a mess it is, I'm in the weeds, like, oh, nope. You gotta, you gotta just put up that wall because they're having right. their dining experience and this is easy for you and you're there to make their evening amazing. And I'm not paying to hear that news. <laughs> they don't want to hear and it. I'll, I'll watch, you know, the evening news if I want to get that kind of story. Yeah, you want to get stressed out on someone else's yeah. behalf. Yeah, <laughs> watch, watch the war in Ukraine on the news. If you had to choose between absolutely amazing food and lack of ambiance and lack of experience on that end, or amazing experience, amazing ambiance, but very average food, what would you choose? Neither one I would leave. 
That's a damn good answer. <laughs> you know, when you walk into up to a restaurant and the the windows in the front are dirty, just turn around and leave. If the flowers are dead, turn around and leave because they have, if they can't get it all right, a great restaurant experience is a balanced. It doesn't have to be the greatest service, the greatest food, the greatest ambiance, the greatest decor. In fact, the more expensive the decor, probably the more difficult it is to... The restaurant should never outdress the customer. Unless the customer is, you know, ready to go into Ducasse in Monte Carlo every night, covered in diamonds, okay, that's the, they meet the decor. But that's not the way it is pretty much anymore. It's a balanced thing. So the ambiance, the, which is made by the decor and the food and the service, they all have to be together. Again, teamwork. So, I mean, who cares to have the most brilliant food in a, in a dirty restaurant or the waiter, you know, the first two bottles of wine you order, he comes back and says, we don't have them. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it depends on what experience you're gearing up towards, because if you're going to go to a restaurant in Chinatown, for instance, n not every restaurant in Chinatown, but I feel like if you're going to a really nice restaurant and you're met with the experience of, you know, half the menus out and, your right. plate's dirty, then you're like, what the hell is going on here? But, you know, if you're gearing yourself up for a different experience, do you ever go to uh, hole-in-the-wall restaurants or mom-and-pop shops? Well, I mean, one of my favorite places to go in Merida is at the uh, Central Market. Right inside the entrance is a little stand selling tacos. Tacos mm. of Cochinita and tacos of lechon have taken a few well-known New York food celebrities there. And they were looking at the market. Oh my God, sitting at this counter that's clean ish, you know, and the, waiter, and the waiter is very ish. And then they <laughs> taste the, the taco with cochinita with this really rich braised pork. And they go, Oh my God. And I said, See, that's the same level of satisfaction as a long mm. lunch at Le Bernardin. Mm -hmm. well, it doesn't matter all, how expensive it is or what it is. If it's the best of what it is, if it's the best hamburger in town, fine. Next, yeah. next time you come to New York, I'm taking you to my spot. And also, have you ever have I ever taken you no. to Spicy Village in Chinatown? Oh, that sounds wonderful. It is Henan Chinese food, like a very specific regional region of cooking. I think it was right. along the Spice Road and just right. um, sorry, the Silk Road. It's uh, unreal. I take everyone I know there. So next time you're in New York, we're Great. going. It's a hole in the wall, but I think you're going to appreciate the experience. I look forward to it. I, I want to comment. Um, first of all, cochinita pibil is always the dish that I make when I have a gathering of people, especially those who haven't experienced a lot of Mexican cuisine. So I'm the spawn of two Mexican immigrants. Right. Uh, my parents <laughs> both immigrated here from Mexico. And um, one of the first things that I would read about Tony was how highly he spoke of the Mexican, you know, typically me heavily Mexican right. uh, back of house staff. And to me, that just was, it was a moment of, it felt really nice, the acknowledgement in a positive, especially when the news is flooded with, you know, stuff about your culture in a negative way. So it was really nice that someone with the influence and someone as badass as Tony to right. speak highly of, you know, where my family came from. And also finding out that you moved to Mexico, I really wanted to ask you, did you know a lot about Mexican cuisine before moving there? What was sort of your inspiration to go there and what has surprised you in the Mexican culture, food, etc.? Well, I always say now to the people asking me that, when was the last time you heard people all over the world say, thank you, Mexico, for mm. my tomatoes, for my chilies, Sichuan cooking? Italian cooking. I mean, it's thank you, Mexico. And no one ever, no one ever says that, but it's a huge thank you. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you. As a Mexican, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also thank you to every Mexican line cook who is eclipsed by a sh a, another name of a chef who has cooked well, almost every meal we've had. <laughs> right. And then, you know, Tevin on the Green after that disaster. Uh, but Tony and a few other. Eric Ripa and some other friends said, Jeremiah, you have to have Mexican cooks. You, you, know, they were, you all had you know, young white guys on the line. He said, Are you, you were crazy. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me that before? I didn't know. <laughs> you know, I hadn't ever cooked in New York. The young, the 24-year-old white guys from the suburbs standing there about to plate fettuccine, which, you know, the timing of cooking, plating pasta like that is 
amazing because you have to judge the time it gets to the table. So its first mouthful is when it's finished, not when you've finished it on your line. The waiter's about to pick it up. He hasn't finished it. And his phone rings. He takes out the, the phone. And I said, you can imagine what I said. I mean, it was nice, <laughs> nice but firm. I said, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Don't put that phone away and play it. He said, what's your problem? And I turned and said, you are out. And that's I mean, when he said, Jeremiah, what were you doing with white guys on the line? The I disrespect, though, the disrespect of you and of the pasta, I may oh. add. I own a pasta pop-up and I serve pasta, like seven course pasta dinners. Right. And I am so wow. aware of the finicky nature of pasta and how quickly it needs to come out. Because as you said, the sauce is going to start congealing. It's going to start right. cooling. It needs to be out. I mean, with pasta, you're, you're listening to it, you're looking at it, you're smelling it, you know, and that timing, the seconds, many seconds are going by before it gets ruined. So how you could think of anything other than doing that over. perfectly, yeah. Also, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's because I grew up the child of immigrants, but the audacity or the idea of taking out my phone while I'm in the middle of doing something like that oh, is no. just unreal. Yeah. Well, your grandmother would have slapped you. I mean, my parents, everyone, they'd be yeah. like, what the hell are you doing? Seriously. The entire family would have had. Yeah. And I, so I was the only white line cook, I believe, when I was working at the restaurant I worked at. And um, I would say definitely made for better food and more efficiency. Right. Absolutely. Speaking of Tavern on the Green, can you tell yes. us a little bit more of that experience and your decision to cook in New York, which was, you know, to the chagrin of Tony and Lydia after wrapping the last Magnificent. Oh, they were furious oh, at me. He's back. <laughs> furious at me. And I said, well, I didn't know anything about production. You were timing you. We never talked about the production or your schedule. So when that opportunity came along, I, and I can never resist a challenge. You know, I have a fatal flaw in me like that. So, I mean, I should have said absolutely not, but I did it. I mean, there was some history with Tavern on the Green and stars and the press and all that kind of thing. So I did it. But the owners had never had a restaurant, or they had a restaurant in Philadelphia, but not a serious restaurant. So there was no teamwork at all, at all, at Tavern. So it, it crashed every day. I was listening to a Charlie Rose uh, <laughs> interview, and you said this line, which I thought, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely steal it, and um, it's escaping <laughs> me right now, because I think... The, he had asked you, how did Tony see that this was going to fail, but you didn't see it? And you said this beautiful line, you, you have a fatal attraction to, uh, what was for the it? Slim the slim chance. For the slim chance, yeah. Um, I, don't know, I, I just remember hearing that. I was like, that's, that's just like a, a beautiful uh, line right there that I yeah. really appreciated. An unfortunate situation, but uh, what a excellent way to describe it. I feel like everything you say <laughs> is so poetic. I need to learn how to speak like that. I'm throwing in the... The, the the curse words and the likes every second and everything out of Jeremiah's mouth is a poem. Well, I've been at it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and also, don't forget at Shape and East, we started with, none of us knew what we were doing. We didn't have any mm -hmm. money. All we knew is that you'd work eight hours a week, something would happen, uh, and it did. But, you know, we didn't, had, didn't know what we were doing. There was no, oh, this is, we're going to make history or anything. No, we were just trying to get by and make sure mm. there was enough money deposited that night so we could buy food in the next, the next day. That's how humble it was. Probably really fond memories. What, what dish, I would say what meal, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whittle it down even further. What dish have you served throughout your career or during your career made you the most proud? Well, that's, that's quite a difficult question to answer, but I would say that mastering the art of doing some of the old dishes like choucroute, garni, any of those dishes that took three or four days to make, but the weren't for in, uh, let me explain it better. Paella, mm. almost never any good. You know, if you have it with, in, a, in Spain or Mexico or someplace they specialize in it, fine. But you have to do it all the time because the secret to paella is all about the rice. So I would cook. So I figured out at Stars how to make individual portions of paella that tasted exactly like the great big one cooked over a fire on the beach because it's all about the rice. I would cook, you know, a triple fish and shellfish stock, cook the rice, and then finish it off in little saute pans onto the plate, a little bit of smoke involved in the oven. And it was Oof. amazing. So I think, I don't know, it just came to me. I wouldn't have thought of that before, but I was more proud of that 
to how to recreate doing 60 individual ones a night when it tasted just the way it did in, in the southern Spain on the beach. That's I think it takes a lot of, um, I think, just paying attention and ability to not only recreate a dish, but like, I mean, you just described a whole, I feel like I want to crack open a beer on the somewhere on the coast of Spain. And like, if you could make someone Absolutely. feel that way, even if they've never been there, that, I mean, I think that's, no, the, you know, what the really changes a delicious dish to something truly special. That's the importance of benchmarks. I would, I taught my chef, my crew at Stars particularly, I would take them to France occasionally, you know, but I had tasted in my life, you know, the greatest smoked salmon in the world uh, and remembered what it tasted like. One night I was cooking my main cook, Mark France at Stars, Friday night, packed and with chicken. And I went on about French chickens. He said, if you talk to me one more minute about those fucking French chickens, I quit. I said, Mark, you've got your passport with you, right? Because they always had to have their passport with He said, yes. I said, there's a plane leaving tonight, much later tonight for Paris. We're on it. Made the reservation, flew into Paris, checked in the hotel, went to the Rangis, the big central market, bought six different kinds of chickens. They're all different quality. Took them to a friend's restaurant, cooked them. He said, I said, now do you get it about those fucking French chickens? In his defense, I, and I, I have not been to France since I was 18. I'm actually going in two weeks. But people who cook French food really love to talk about chicken. Jacques yes. Pan mentioned chicken so many times. Also, I, I, want to, I want to applaud you. And I hope that everyone that's listening, that is the most elaborate, like, this is a point that I'm going to prove. <laughs> The, the dedication to the point, yeah. to the mission. No, We're I, flying to France to, to, I feel like to that, prove that. That could be a film in and of itself. And then the punchline is like, do you get it now? There you go. <laughs> also, you know, it occurred to me on the way back this is one of the best things I've ever done, apart from what we've just said. But then the whole staff was riveted. Okay, if we come up with a new idea or we need to be taught something, Jeremiah will fly us to France. <laughs> <laughs> they would come in and say, waiters would come in and say, I saw this in a magazine. What about this? You know, that's how like escargot thing everyone's so obsessed with. I don't get it. <laughs> you want to show me? <laughs> well, obviously, Anthony Bourdain uh, love cooked French food. I mean, I guess apparently mediocre French food, but French food nonetheless. Well, the day and, I was there anyway. Well, yes, exactly. Aside from just cooking, what would you say has been Anthony Bourdain's lasting impact on you? Something that you keep with you or memories and otherwise? You heard about that. You know, he was brilliant at little quick comebacks on TV, live TV. He was famous for it. So somebody on one of the morning shows tried to pinpoint and embarrass him, which is, of course, was, with Tony was impossible, unless you did something really disgusting. But sexual or language or anything it could never embarrass Tony. So the woman said, so what would, you, what would be your favorite thing? Final great sex or great food? And he turned immediately like that. Said, depend on who's doing the fucking and who's doing the cooking. <laughs> <laughs> That's the essential Tony Burden to me. Oh, my God. What an answer. What an answer. And just like, like that. No thinking. <laughs> Just right out of that amazing brain of his. So brilliant. Oh yes. I love that. And I love people who can answer a question without answering the question, but there's really no further comment necessary. Like you're not right, going to. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Well, he could avoid any. Yeah. Yeah. He was very like good at that. It's a funny way of avoiding that. Well, and I was going to ask to, um, because you, I mean, obviously he admired you greatly and, you know, made this film about you. And I'm, I'm, and you, have had such an incredible success with your career and uh, highly regarded. Was there something that he like taught you that even if it's something like simple as like, I don't know, like a band that you that was like, Oh, that is incredibly cool. Or even cooking wise, or just like uh, a thing in life that is just like remains with you. There's something that you learned from him that you apply in your life. Now, is, is there anything that stands out to you that just reminds you of Tony in that sense? Well, I mean, apart from, you know, never to answer a question, go around it as yeah. much as you can. As you just said, yep. I love the fact that he, he knew exactly like his streetwise, those picketers in New Jersey adored him and everybody else did as well. His sense of entertainment that wasn't elitist, but he, I mean, he was, I mean, he wasn't elitist in a way. How to choose to do a program, for instance, when America, the United States was going ridiculous about Libya 
then he trots mm -hmm. off and does a show about Libyans having lunch, families cooking and having dinner, you know. They're not all terrorists. They're actually human beings having, loving their families and cooking for them. That was amazing. I can't think of anybody else in the United States who had the courage and also the foresight, the vision to do that. And, and probably also the ability to relate to all the sides of that equation, which right. I think would make him so powerful. Like he, he could speak to news media and, you know, famous and yes. you know, intimidating chefs, and then also have lunch with families in Libya. And I think that was so, that's so special and, and it's definitely a unique uh, skill. Well, I just fantasized I was... that he'd walked into somebody's house and there was mama and he charmed her as she shooed the terrorists out the back door. <laughs> and like, not today, not this time. Not this, no, 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 no. Not with this guy. He's too nice. He's good. He's good. <laughs> we keep him. On that note, if you could cook Anthony Bourdain one last meal, what would you cook him? Wow. Well, it would have to be a bit of a joke because, you know, he'd always say to a cook, someone was bragging about, you know, their latest 15 ingredient mess on a plate. He would say, well, can you cook an omelet? As I told you before. So I would cook him, cook him an omelet in French butter with black truffles, the best black truffles you get, and stuff that omelet with black truffles. That sounds... Delicious yeah. and also a recurring theme amongst Francophiles, the omelet. Before the omelet, we would have had, you know, a couple of shots of buffalo grass vodka, Zubrovka, with some absolutely perfect caviar, just with spoons, no toast or bread involved. Uh, I love that. Vodka shots. Yes. And then, and then a roast chicken, a French one. Oh, I forgot about the chicken, yes. <laughs> a breast chicken roasted on a spit over wood fire, also with, stuffed with truffles. It's a chicken. But not truffle oil, because didn't he famously hate truffle That's oil? That's rubbish. Disgusting stuff. True. Just go f spring for the real deal or don't have it at all. Yes, yes. I remember he famously also once said, if you can't peel and mince garlic, you don't deserve to eat garlic. <laughs> like you're going to get... <laughs> Which I always loved. Um, it's really fun. I, it's funny because uh, Fab and I actually never got to meet Anthony Bourdain. So it's really fun for us to be able to reminisce ah, with yes. people who have... Mm even though we were not his friends, but we fancy that we would have been. I mean, definitely every time I would have been. You're just now you're just flattering us. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. He would have loved you. Oh, that's really sweet. Where were you uh, when you heard of Tony's passing? Oh, my God. I was in a studio in New Orleans, live program. Uh, we were filming a, a cooking demonstration, but the rest of it, the interview was live. And I was standing out in the, in the green room. It was 7 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning. And they brought me the news. Choke up for a minute, excuse me. And I said, don't you dare ask me about Tony Bourdain on the, you know, because they told me the news and I went in and did the demonstration and then the interview. And, of course, the first thing that interviewer did said, well, how do you think, why did he kill himself? I was like, oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. I said, Thank you. This interview is over and walked out. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have to put on the professional face and go through with the commitment in that moment. Well, that's what we do. You guys yeah. do. You know what that's like. You get injured on the line. It doesn't matter. Keep going and tend to the boo-boo later. Absolutely. I was helping out a Chinese uh, cook on the line. He was chopping fish. And I, was, I thought, I'll just get and chop some fish. And I nearly chopped my finger off. And I thought, no. And I mean, it was a really deep cut. And he went, wait a minute, wait a minute. Little Chinese cook, I mean, almost no English. Great guy. He took a packet out of his pocket. It was white powder, poured it on my finger. It hurt the most of anything I've ever felt. I think I ran around the kitchen screaming for a couple of minutes. Shuddering. It was unbelievably painful. And the next day, it was closed and gone. No. Oh, wow. what, what, was, what was this miraculous substance? I, you know, I should have gone back to him and found out and made millions of dollars selling it to the restaurant. Not, not FDA approved. <laughs> oh, of course not. It was Chinese. <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to add? Anything we didn't touch on? Anything you would like to talk about? Well, let me think. He loved it. In the article I read this morning, he loved Marco Piero White, the English chef. He mm. loved Fergus Henderson at St. John. And of course, Eric Rieper, who I admire as much as anybody. If you look at St. John, go to St. John, you're in London. Look at 
Fergus Henderson's books and everything, and you really understand part of Tony. That is, you know, I went the first time I went there on the menu with chicken hearts on toast. I went, chicken hearts on toast? Really? So, of course, I had to order those. And they were three little chicken hearts that had been confit and duck fat and on a perfect piece of English toast. And toast, you know, is one of the most difficult things to make perfectly in the restaurant business. In the old days, 200 years ago, if you were a commie, you weren't allowed to do anything until you could cook perfect Melba toast. That's a toasted slice of bread, then cut in half this way, so it's paper thin and toasted again. And so the chef would pick it up and, nope, nope. Now, so you could be there six months or a year trying to make toast before they allowed you on the line. That's, it's, it's like the omelet for the, it's, it's like it's omelet, or it's like rice, yeah, the sushi. rice for sushi. Yes, yes. Well, rice, I, you know, very different. I can't, I've never been able to cook rice properly. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Me either. You know, I, um, it's one of those, it was always gummy or yeah. just porgy. And I mean, I think one of the best things that ever came out of my relationship with the next was that she taught me how to cook perfect rice. And I will and you just left her? teach her the rest you of crazy? my life. No, no, unfortunately, <laughs> no. I, yeah, I took a bushel of rice and I headed out of there. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but rice was always the hardest thing for me to learn how to cook. And it was, it was. Insane. Well, it's always the deceptively simple things like yeah. the toast. Yeah. Um, and potatoes, boiled potatoes, for instance. Yeah. Very difficult. All of those things are, are hard and, and rice gets me, gets me every time. I always wanted to try Fergus Henderson's cooking. I used to work with April Bloomfield as yeah. I was used to be a public for she, chefs and restaurants. So I worked with April and she was greatly, you know, loved him. April's a fabulous chef. She Brilliant. really, really is. Yeah. So go to St. John in London. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's worth the trip. And Fergus is still around. I am not, not going to London this time around, but I am going to Paris. And I have a, a pretty filled schedule. But if I were to make time for one restaurant that you would recommend, what would it be? Using oh. this interview for my selfish purposes. <laughs> one should always go at least once to the famous slightly ridiculous Lemmy Louis. In the old days, Lemmy Louis, I mean, they give you when you, I ordered a duck and they brought me a whole duck. And that was one of my, one of four courses. They bring you this great big cote de boeuf, a big, you know, ribeye, and they cook it in butter. And then they pour butter over the thing till it's, you know, a quarter of an inch thick on deep on the plate. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's not the best food in Paris, but it is the unique in the world for being the most outrageous with delicious French food. To do a very, very rich steak and smother it in butter, melted butter. Yeah, and the potatoes, salad, not saladets because those have truffles in them, but the ones cooked in duck fat. You know, they bring you a whole platter of that for one person. I mean, I'm ready. That's the way I'm ready to go out. I'm just going to eat. Arrange for an ambulance to be outside when you leave. That sounds good. I think yeah. I think if I have that meal, I will have been good. That sounds like a fair end. I need to get health insurance before we go. There. We go. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of the famous people who knew the world of the Queen Mary and, and you know, Instagram cooking today, unless you go to Le Bernardin, that's not Instagram cooking, that's delicious. Back to benchmarks. Unless you've tasted, oh, I get right to the point, in Mexico, Chinese restaurants, you go in, and all the work, the staff cooking are Mexicans. Well, they've never tasted great Chinese food. They've never been to San Francisco or New York, Chinatown, uh, let alone, you know, Taiwan with its best Chinese food. So unless you've got that taste in your mouth, you just need it once. You just need it once, and then you can reproduce it. Benchmarks, and that's what's missing from a lot of the restaurant cooking today in the United States, for sure. They think that the list of, of exotic and latest fashionable ingredients tells the story. It doesn't. It just tells the mm -hmm. fact that you can read. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, too, that you can't teach taste, you know? It's no tough. Oh, you ingredients. can. You can. I mean, you take whatever it is, you know, a Dover sole, smoked salmon, smoked fish, vegetables, anything, you know. There's something about, for instance, an onion, a white onion, that you've picked 10 minutes before out of the garden, you brush off the dirt, wash it, peel it, and eat it. That is a complete revelation. Got nothing to do with all the onions you've had all your life. Sweet and beautiful, and that's why 
My mother, for instance, one of her favorite things was to do that, bring it in, clean them up, slice them, and put them in between and make a sandwich, bread, butter, and onion, salt and pepper. Doesn't make any That's sense. Not- Doesn't make any sense until you've tasted an onion right out of the garden. It, it does make sense to me because of this, this, well, my grandpa had an amazing garden. So I did, right. I did have the privilege of having fresh, simple ingredients. And I think the way I grew up with, you know, my parents were refugees from the Soviet Union. My grandparents were born in Ukraine or actually not Ukraine, but my parents were born in Ukraine. And the cooking I grew up with was very simple and I never appreciated it. Like we would just have a salad of tomato, cucumber and onion, olive oil, and that's it. And, and things like that, just very Ukrainian kind of country cooking. And I think that I've, it's taken such an arc in my culinary life to seek out the most flavors, the most ingredients, the most intense permutations of ingredients to then come right back to where I started with realizing that the beautiful ingredient and, and this in its simplest, best form is kind of the best statement there is. And that's where mm. great cooking starts there. You get too far away from that. As I said, you're on very thin ice. Where does your relationship with Alice Waters stand today? Well, I was going to do a, uh, an event uh, in the spring in London for the Oxford Cultural Collective. We had done some stuff at Oxford University with them before. And the American embassy in London said, we want to honor you and what you've done as farm to table. And all. And I said, well, <clears throat> then you should invite Alice Waters as well. And I thought it'd be great to get back together and, and think of the press coup. That would be anyway. But I mean, it was time to be friendly again, because I've gone back to some of the anniversary dinners there and we were fine. But she never responded, not to the embassy, mm-hmm. not to me. So I'm not sure. I think, I think the last Magnificent must have pissed her off. Tough documentary to watch in certain ways because I feel that as, as someone who never met either of you and, you know, was not around during that time, I felt that, you know, injustice was done towards you and it made me kind of angry. So I can imagine that it didn't feel good. Sometimes the truth doesn't feel good. I don't know. No, it didn't feel good, but it was, I was, I had been willing for years to let it go. But Lydia and Tony fired me up. <laughs> How could you let this happen? Uh, well, you know, we don't have to talk about that. How did what I said was? How did you let this happen? <laughs> so finally, I just okay, let it all out. Well, there's something really beautiful and poetic about the fact that Tony was so, I guess, outraged on your behalf, and he wanted yes. to set the record straight. And um, as we always say, history is written by the victors. He, throughout his career, it seems like, I'm not to call you an underdog, but I feel like he has historically throughout his entire career really strived to give a voice to people whose voices were silenced in in many regards and for many reasons and in many ways. And I feel like your story and his his attraction to your story is not different from that. You know, he felt like your voice was not properly being documented. Yes. And that was part of his whole going around the world and glorifying the source of all our pleasure in eating this food. Not the famous chef in the city, but the people, everyone else. What's next for you, Jeremiah? Are you opening another other restaurants or what's happening in your world? No, I mean, I, I fantasize about opening a beach bar. I was in, in Thailand. We used to go down on Sunday because it was a Chinese restaurant on the beach just on Sundays. And there was a little tiny bar, I mean, big enough for four people, down one end, and they had the best music system. And we got, I got there with a friend of mine, and, and it was hot, sunny. And I said, do you have an umbrella? And they said, yes. So they sent their little, little tiny Thai guy into the jungle. He cut down a banana tree and came back and stuck it in the sand. Uh, next to me. That was my umbrella. And I just thought that was like my moment in the brasserie in Paris, you know, with the women with long red fingernails. I just thought, mm-hmm. that's hospitality. Again, no, it didn't say no. Said yes, and then thought, now what the fuck are we going to do? So a beach bar like that, but, you know, I did it for 40 years, 80, 90 hours a week. That's enough. Yeah. But I am doing, hauling out all my misadventures and adventures and photographs and favorite meals and cooking on this program called Substack. So every week mm. I publish an article on Substack. It's a lot of fun. Um, we're going to have to post the link to your Substack. Yeah. And I had a, a Substack for a year. It's now um, 
more or less defunct, but I had a lot of fun with it. It's a oh, wonderful yeah. platform. I can't wait to read yes. read your post. Yeah, Reichel has an amazing Substack too. She was heavily featured in the documentary. I've never been on Substack. No, I want to. It's it's you know post, it's kind of like a social media medium meets newsletter vibes. So I've got amazing. friends there. You know, if you you pay five dollars a month and you get access to all the archives, so there are twenty five articles already that I've written, and you know what the last one was about cream and Christian Dior about his, you know, last meal on a train going to the south of France where he had a whole foie gras poached in champagne and then and drank a bottle of Chateau Kim with it. He also, before he did that, he'd just been in New York and he was with Alex Lieberman from Berg and his wife. And they had, you know, with more foie gras and chickens and stuff like that. And then they said, you know where he's going? He's going down to Times Square to eat a hot dog. So the article, <laughs> Champagne Dogs, because it, I opened, I put hot dogs on the bar menu at Stars because I thought after the opera, be perfect to go into Stars, have a glass or two of champagne and a hot dog. And the hot dog became That's famous. Awesome. That is poetic. I love that. And that perfect. Was the last article. All of that was in the last article. I'm going to be digging through yeah. those archives Great. very soon. Great. Very excited to dive into some of your writing because listening to you speak is wonderful. I know. It can be this eloquent Thank speech. You. I can't wait to pour myself a glass of nice champagne and pick up a hot dog and just get to absolutely get to well, okay thank you so much thank for you taking the time it does it was uh, genuinely a blast Such and so fun delight. and yeah. i love so many laughs thank you so much for don't it. be a stranger stay in touch okay. and if you're ever in new york please let us know absolutely you're taking me to chinatown thank you for listening to today's episode of friends of anthony bourdain you can listen along wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review. Let us know if there's someone you're dying for us to interview on the pod. And be sure to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all the social media platforms at Friends of Anthony Bourdain.